Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we open the word of God this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together to be challenged by the teaching of your word this evening, recognizing that it's so easy for us to simply relax, to simply uh, go along and and just uh, let the circumstances and situations of our life dictate how we how we think and how we live, rather than taking a proactive uh, biblical position with a mental attitude that's focused on Bible doctrine. Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening that we will recognize that that in many ways we're not any different from these who are who were originally receiving this uh, letter to the uh, Hebrews and that in many ways we also just want to uh, sort of give up and take the easy way or the human viewpoint way or the way that seems right to man rather than taking the strong stand of pressing on to spiritual maturity. And we pray that you'd help us to understand the things we look at this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews 10. Now, last time we started roughly back around 26 with some review. We got down past verse uh, 32 into the latter section, but we had had a little glitch in a number of little things last week uh, technologically, which meant that When I came down here at 6 o'clock for something, expecting the printers to work and to print my notes, none of the printers worked. So we were going from memory. That's not always a good thing. So we're going to pick up some loose ends at the end of the chapter tonight in order to make sure I've got some things clarified, plus go into a little more detail in a couple of the passages because of questions that were raised uh, last week. So we're going to start primarily at verse 32 where we have a a shift in tone. Let's just sort of review a minute. 26 and 27 gives us the warning. This is a an exhortation passage. Exhortation is a word that means to challenge, 
to encourage somebody to a course of action. And each of these sections that we've gone through has a teaching section and then a an application section, in other words. And 19, verses 19 to 39 are the application or challenge section. 19 to 25, it lays the basis in terms of what we have in Christ. 26 and 27 are really the warning itself, that if we sin willfully when we've received the knowledge of the truth, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. I point out that the way that's translated sounds like a negative, but it's a positive, that even though if we sin willfully, there's still a sacrifice for sin because the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross ended all problems with sin. But there is still a problem. You just don't get away scot-free, verse 27, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries deals with the fact that there is judgment, even for believers, in terms of the uh, Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, where believers will be evaluated on the basis of how they've lived their spiritual life. That which is produced by the sin nature is wood, hay, and straw. That which is produced by God the Holy Spirit will be gold, silver, and precious stones. Only that which is produced during our walk by the Spirit has eternal value. Only that survives the evaluation judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and only that is the basis for rewards on into the millennial kingdom and into eternity. There is a very sober Reminder in verses 28 to 31 that there is accountability uh, in Scripture for all believers, and it goes. Uh, the, he goes back to the Mosaic Law and says, even under the Mosaic Law, which was a lesser covenant, there is a serious uh, punishment for those who are disobedient, and how much more, uh, how much more severe the punishment will be for those who are living their spiritual life based on a superior covenant, which the, which the new covenant is. And then that's little, that, that point from 28 to 31, focusing on, on judgment, ends with the statement, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and that we have to take this seriously. Grace doesn't mean there's no responsibility. Grace doesn't mean there's no accountability. Grace doesn't mean that there's no future negative evaluation on believers for failure in their life. There is at the judgment seat of Christ, and there is a risk of losing Uh, and losing out on the great potential that we have in the spiritual life. And so the tone shifts from 31 to 32, and in 32, it's no longer the negative, it's the positive. And the writer is saying, but remember how you were in the former days. Remember when you were first saved, he's addressing these believers, how you went through all manner of adversity and suffering and hardship and he reminds them of the details of that suffering and that hardship, and he wants them to recall how their focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and their focus on the Word of God and on God's provision for them, their relationship with God, got them through those difficult times. Now, we all go through hard times. Sometimes we go through difficult times and adversity because we're just living in the devil's world. And because we're living in the devil's world, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you're walking by the Spirit or not, if you're in rank carnality, apostasy, uh, thumbing your nose at God, the Holy Spirit still lives inside of you, 
And so he's going to be working to bring you back. That's called divine discipline. And you still are a child of God, whether you want to admit it or not, and therefore the devil's got a target on your backside. So you basically have one of two options. You can continue to resist God and then have to deal with all of the problems of living in a devil's world on your own resources and still being a target of Satan and also being the object of divine discipline from the Holy Spirit, or you can get right with God so that all of the things that we go through in life and the hardships, the suffering, and everything else can have a positive long-term spiritual benefit uh, benefit in our lives. So in verse 32, the writer of Hebrews says, but recall the former days, the earlier days. Now, we don't know how far back this was. This could have gone all the way back to the uh, to the period right after uh, the ascension of Christ in the early church. Remember when, uh, the, when after the ascension, there's about 10 days that goes by, and then you have the day of Pentecost. God the Holy Spirit uh, came down upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost, and what happened? Peter preached, and 5,000 got saved. The next day, 4,000 got saved. And so out and during the next two or three years, from approximately 33 to 37 A.D., there were thousands of Jews in Judea and in Galilee that came to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, and that included a large number of Levitical priests. And it's very likely, we don't know for sure, but all of the indications in Hebrews are that those who are, who, to whom this is written were former priests, the writer goes into, all, as, we, as we have done, goes into all of the details related to the Mosaic sacrifices, the Levitical offerings, all of the ritual in the temple, as if his readers fully comprehend the significance of all of these things, and that would be true of priests. So they, the, the assumption is that, that the original recipients were Jewish priests who have gone through a tremendous amount of suffering and loss in their lives because as they took their stand for Jesus and as the decades went by through the 40s, the 50s, and now the early part of the 60s, there's been more and more of a hostility from the Jewish establishment, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees towards these Christians, those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And as that hostility has increased, there has been the experience of more and more of a persecution. And those who were originally priests and, and, and saved probably stayed within that, within that role and within that function for a while, but it would not be long before they began to realize, as they were taught and as New Testament uh, revelation was given, realizing Jesus is the fulfillment of the Levitical sacrifices, then they began to leave and are were kicked out, were removed from their uh, function. Now, if you go to Jerusalem, to an area just west of the Wailing Wall, which is the western retaining wall on the Temple Mount, there is there's an area called the uh, uh, an area you go down in a, in a building and they, when they, uh, excavated after the 67 war when, when, it, uh, the Jews retook Jerusalem and they excavated in there and everything in the Jewish quarter was destroyed by the, uh, 
uh, by the Arabs uh, after the War of Independence. And so they used that opportunity to dig down below the foundations of all these houses. They found uh, the what they call the Herodian Quarter, and it was, they believed, the residence of the priests, so that they were just to the just to the west of the Temple Mount, and there were a couple of bridges, walkways, where they could just walk out of their houses and walk across these walkways into the Temple Mount. Well, they would have been um, removed from their living quarters, and I think all of that's part of the part of the background here. So the writer is saying, recall those early days when you were first saved, after you were illuminated. Now that's an important word and an important phrase because it indicates their salvation. It's the Greek word photizo, where we get our word. I mean, the basic root is phos for light. It's where we get our word for photograph and other words related to that. Uh, illumination, and it's the same word that's used in Hebrews 6.4 where we read, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, etc. It's a clear word for salvation, those who have come to understand the truth of the gospel. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift. And we saw when we went through that study that the word translated tasted there isn't the word of just just sampling something, like when you're going through the grocery store and you have all the different people out there on Saturdays giving you a little taste of this and a little taste of that, and you just get a little sample to see what it tastes like, and hopefully they'll sell it to you. But it's not that. It is a a word that means to uh, completely take something in and to fully experience something. It's the same words that used when it's when Hebrews uh, 2 states that Jesus Christ tasted death for all of us. It's to fully experience something, not just uh, get a little uh, a light uh, experience. So it has the idea that, and it communicates that these were completely and fully saved. So recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with suffering. And the word there for suffering is our word, uh, the Greek word uh, pathema, which comes from the verb pasco. That's the root, which is where we get the word uh, passion meaning suffering, that that word that's used for the passion of Christ comes from the word pasco, meaning to suffer. And so the passion of Christ doesn't have to do with emotion. It has to do with suffering. And this is just a general term for their suffering. Now, in verse 33, we read, uh, Partly, while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. Now, the word reproaches is a word that sort of loses its its impact today. It just doesn't have, These are people who are ridiculed and insulted and verbally assaulted because they're Christians. People made fun of them. They called them names. They uh, yelled at them, all kinds of things. But it deals with the verbal assault that came because they were Christians and they were being rejected by their peers, by their family and their friends, because they believed that Jesus was was the Messiah. And then the second word, tribulations, has to do with the the suffering that comes 
as a result of affliction. So we could translate it adversity. So partly while you were made a spectacle, that is a, a visual, uh, everybody saw this, it's out in public, it's the Greek word uh, theatrizo, where we get our word uh, theater. It has to do with they were made a spectacle both by uh, verbal assault and physical affliction, and partly while you became uh, companions of those who were so treated. So it shows that they they stood together. Those who weren't being treated that way came alongside and helped and encouraged those who were being treated that way. They didn't just say, well, if I identify with you, if I come over to your house, they're going to start doing this to me. They hung together as a group. Now, a better way of translating it, because I just think that's a little awkward in the English, especially the New King James Version, I've given you sort of an expanded, amplified translation here. On the one hand, through both verbal insults and ridicule, as well as physical affliction, you were made a public spectacle. But on the other hand, we'll typo there, on the other hand, by becoming sharers with those who lived through this. So they participated, they encouraged them, they hung together as a group. But then that, so this has gone on probably for a couple of decades as the adversity increased. And then we come to verse 34. Now verse 34, if you're using a New American Standard NIV, NEB, or one of the other uh, translations other than the King James or New King James, you had something a little different. I didn't catch this last time. For you had compassion on me in my chains. Now, that's one reading. The New American Standard reading, I think, says for you had, verse, what am I, verse 34. For you had, the New King James, you had compassion on me in my chains. And the New American Standard said you had compassion on the prisoners. Well, that's totally different. One is the writer saying you had compassion on me indicating that he knew them and that they uh, treated him even though he was in prison. And the other is you had compassion on the prisoners. Now, the bottom line of this in terms of application just shows that their, their compassion for those who were, uh, the compassion of those who weren't going through suffering for those who were going through suffering. But there is a, a, a variation in the text but the majority of manuscripts, not just the majority text, but a number of even the, the older manuscripts, with one exception, all have the word here indicating change or the prison. There's just the difference between uh, desmos and desmios. So there's just the uh, introduction of the Greek letter for I, the iota, and there's always that famous cent- uh, statement by... Uh, Edward Gibbon that doesn't make an iota's, we always traditionally mispronounce it like a long I, it doesn't make an iota's worth of difference. But it does, because one talks about prisoner, and the introduction of the iota into the middle of the word means a uh, being in chains, and also the addition of the uh, personal pronoun. And that is in the uh, majority of manuscripts, so I think that's the superior reading that you had compassion on me in my chains, even when he was going through imprisonment, and there were many who were thrown uh, thrown in jail because of 
their stand for the gospel. And this was true even of the Apostle Paul. A good chapter for you to go to. Just hold your place here in Hebrews 11 and turn back with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, and we'll look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11. Let's go first to Second uh, Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is re, uh, responding to this assault from various people that he really wasn't qualified to be an apostle, and these uh, Judaizers, troublemakers, were coming in and questioning his credentials. And so he begins to, in chapter 6, begin to give, begins to give some of his credentials. And in verse uh, 4, he says, But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. Now, I want you to stop and I want you to think about this. Because every one of us goes through tough times, whether it has to do with health problems, whether it has to do with, uh, with financial situations or job or just the personnel that we have to deal with that are, that are at, at work that are just as, as arrogant or as unpleasant as they can be or whether we're having to deal with our, you know, own family members who are as arrogant and unpleasant as they may be or whatever the circumstance may be. We all go through times. There are times when we get down. There are times when we're tempted to just say, woe is me, and to whine and groan about the things that we're going through. And it's really good when you're really feeling down and rejected and that things are tough is to stop and read through these two chapters with the Apostle Paul. It sort of makes you realize, A, you're not alone, and B, it's not that bad. No matter what you've gone through, it's trust me, it's not that bad. Paul says, in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, that's physical affliction, in needs and in distresses, in stripes. That means taking the uh, Roman flagellum, which was like a cat of nine tails, where at the end of the whip it had these strips of leather into which they wove pieces of metal and stone and bone and whatever they could find that would rip the flesh off of you and be whipped. So in stripes means to in you're not wearing stripes like a prison garment. You're wearing you're being uh, whipped in imprisonment. So Paul talks about many times he was thrown in prison. In, in tumults, in, in the middle of a riot, there's a riot that occurred in Ephesus uh, because of the, the, their preaching of the gospel. In labors, it's hard work being in the ministry. Some people don't know that. Some pastors don't know that. Some missionaries don't know that. Uh, and that's really sad. But it, if you're really doing the, you, what you should be doing, it's tough being being a pastor. Uh, one of my favorite books that I read years ago when I was in seminary, because you need to understand this if you're going to be a pastor, uh, was a book that was all about Sarah Edwards, the wife of Jonathan Edwards, and the title says it all, Marriage to a Difficult Man. It ought to be required reading for every pastor's wife because it's not easy being married to, a, to the guy who's going through the whippings and the imprisonments and the tumults and the labors and, and fastings, times where Paul's traveling and there's no food. He's camping out on the side of the uh, Appian Way or somewhere else, and there's, there's no food. Uh, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by a sincere word, 
And he goes on and describes the various things that he's gone through. And then in verse 8, he says, By honor and dishonor, by evil report, that's being slandered, and good report, as deceivers and yet true, being accused of being a deceiver, as unknown and yet well known, as dying, behold, we live, as chastened and not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich. So that, that's sort of a summary overview. Then if you just turn over a couple of chapters to Second Corinthians 11, he goes into a little more detail beginning in verse, uh, verse 23. Again, he's responding to this attack that he's not really a, a qualified apostle. In verse 23, he says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. He's just being rhetorical there. He said, In labors more abundant. So he's done more. He's worked harder than any of the others. He's traveled more. In stripes above measure, those are the same stripes, the beatings, the whippings. In stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently. That doesn't look good on your pastoral resume if you're applying for a church. And uh, what, what have you been doing the last 10 years? Well, I've been in and out of prison a few times. Uh, I've been accused, found guilty, and they've beaten me and whipped me. Okay, let's move on to the next candidate. Uh, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often, and that means in, in risk of his life frequently. Verse 24, he says, From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. See, according to the, 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 uh, tradi- the Pharisaical tradition, you couldn't, according to the law, you couldn't give more than 40 uh, lashes with the whip, so they would only give 39 to make sure they didn't miscount. They didn't want to make a mistake and give one too many. So from the Jews, five times he received uh, 39 lashes. That was incredibly painful. Three times, this is in verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. This is where you take out long, uh, hard rods and uh, sticks, beaten with those. Once I was stoned and left for dead, I was in Damascus, uh, three times I was shipwrecked. Now, we only know of one in the book of Acts, but there were obviously two other times when he is shipwrecked. Uh, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep. In other words, just drifting on the water, not knowing what would happen. In journeys, often in perils of waters, that would be the idea of floods. Camped out on the side of the road somewhere in Greece, you have all these mountains around you and flash floods. Uh, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, in weariness and toils, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. So all of this is what he, what he went through, what the Apostle Paul went through, and the others went through as well. And so back to Hebrews chapter 11, or chapter 10, as these Former priests are going through all of this. They are reminded that the one who is writing this to them has gone through it as well. He has gone through the same sufferings that they're going through. He has been imprisoned, and they uh, visited him and took care of him when he was imprisoned. And then the next phrase says, 
that they joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Now, this raised a number of questions for different people, which is good. I always like people who are thinking about what the text says. And one of the questions, all the questions seem to relate, well, how does this relate to the believer's orientation to the authority of government if they're trying to confiscate property? Don't we have a right to defend property? Only people in Texas are going to ask that. You've got to realize that. Texans just still have that sense of the importance of private property, and the Word of God clearly defends the private ownership of property. It is totally, again, from Genesis to Revelation, there's no basis for communal or uh, communal ownership of property in terms of government. Now, if in the early church where people sold what they owned and they gave it up and gave it to the church, that's voluntary. That was neither mandated by Scripture nor imposed by government. It was a free will decision. And everybody has the right to share whatever they want to share with whomever they have the right to share because they're the ones who who own the property. But here we have the phrase plundering of goods. And there's several things that we ought to say about this to try to address some of the questions that I was asked during the week and asked after class last week. First of all, the word that's translated plundering, there's a noun. It's translated like a participle, but uh, it's it's a noun, the the stealing, the theft, the... uh, uh, the theft of goods, is the word harpage, as a noun, means robbery, plunder, greediness, rapacity. It's translated various other ways in the Scripture. It is a cognate of the verb harpazo, which means to steal or to snatch or to take away. Harpazo is the verb that's used in First Thessalonians chapter 4 for believers being caught up to be with the Lord in the air. That's why... I think Hal Lindsey called it the great snatch. It is in, in late great planet Earth. That's the meaning of harpazo. It was translated by a Latin word, uh, rapto, which is the word for where we get our word rapture. So when people tell you that rapture is not in the Bible, it's in the Latin Bible. It's in the Latin translation of this Greek word. So that's the idea is to steal something, to take take it away. And you can only plunder something if people have a right to ownership. This is a negative concept. It has to do with somebody taking that which is not theirs and which they have, uh, which they have absolutely uh, no right to. Now, we really don't know what the circumstances were that brought about this plundering. We don't know if this was done through an action of the civil authority by, uh, sanctioned by the Romans or instigated by the Romans. We don't know if this was uh, sanctioned by the religious authority, the Sanhedrin. It, I, I think that's the more likely explanation, but we really don't know. We don't know if this was just the result of a mob action where there was a riot or something of that nature in Jerusalem. There was uh, the intensity of emotion, and uh, the Christians were blamed, and so they uh, tore up their houses and stole what they owned. I think the most likely scenario is that this was the direct result of their belief in Christ. It's not just a general action of being the victims of thieves, being the victims of some sort of government uh, go- government action, but it's specifically directed to them as 
uh, as Christians, so it's directly related to their faith in Christ and therefore uh, their witness. One question that uh, several people uh, thought of has to do with what is, what's the implication of this for the believer's response today? Uh, if this, something similar were to happen today, whether it is a, an official uh, government action or whether it is uh, some other kind of action, uh, what is the believer to do? Does a believer have a right to protect uh, his own property? Does a believer have a right to use violence in the protection of his property. If it is an illegal government action, does the believer have a right to protect his property? What about circumstances in Nazi Germany when you had believers who were singled out because they did certain things? Maybe they were supporting Jews or hiding Jews, and uh, they would lose everything and be arrested. Do you have the right to uh, protect yourself even to the point of using, uh, using violence in order to protect your own private property? Well, as we think through this, I think we have to be very careful in how we understand this passage. The passage itself is not focusing on the circumstances that gave rise to the loss of property. It's focusing on the believer's mental attitude after he had lost the property. And the mental attitude is one of joy. He wasn't griping, complaining, bearing a grudge. He rec- The believer recognizes that our our material possessions are just that. They're here today for us to enjoy, and they may be gone tomorrow, but we're not going to be emotionally attached to our things. Now, I know that's hard for some of you. But we're not going to be emotionally attached to our things to where the loss of them uh, wipes out our mental attitude of joy as believers. We need to be focused on the Lord and recognize that there's something greater coming. And the issue that happens when we lose whatever it is we lose, we need to realize that God's still in control and there's a reason for it. And so when we have that loss, we need to focus on the lesson that God has for us and how we can respond in a way that honors and glorifies him. Now, Second thing we ought to, having said that, we ought to, there are some lessons I think we can learn from this. Uh, first of all, we have to recognize that down through the ages from this early, early stages of Christianity in the, uh, late thirties all the way up to, uh, all the way up to the present, Christians have been persecuted by mobs, by totalitarian governments, and by religious powers. It's, started with the Sanhedrin in the early church. The Apostle Paul was one example. Before he was saved, when he was Saul of Tarsus, he was out dragging Christians out of their homes and throwing them in prison, and in some cases they were being being stoned to death. So persecution began very early. And perhaps we can uh, learn some things uh, from those examples. Today such things happen in many places around the globe and Excuse me. In Islamic countries, uh, if you become a, a convert to Christianity, they have the right to take your life, and in many cases, they are executed because they convert to Christianity. Another thing we should point out is that because we don't know the exact circumstances surrounding this attack, we're limited in how how we can take uh, or make application. We do not know. Uh, whether the action that was taken was consistent with Roman law, 
We don't know if the action that was taken was somehow justified by uh, rabbinic law or the law or, or Sanhedrin. We don't know if the action was uh, from a mob. Uh, we don't know if the individuals had any recourse or whether they were just overwhelmed by a force that was obviously so great and so powerful that there was no way in which they could uh, they could resist. We don't know to what degree they were able to resist or if they tried to protect themselves or their own property. We have no idea. We do have examples in Scripture where people did protect themselves and their property at different times, and that was fully justified. So let's, let me make a couple of points. First of all, the Bible clearly recognizes the validity of the private ownership of property. In fact, it is at the very core of Scripture, going back to uh, Genesis chapter 1, when God created uh, Adam and Eve, created the man and the woman, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. He gave them the real estate deed to the planet. And they were placed in dominion over everything on the planet. So they have the right of ownership, and then it develops from there. When you get into other passages later on, for example, in the Mosaic Law, in uh, Exodus, in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verses 15 through 17, we have the clear recognition of the validity of private ownership of property. The commandment, you shall not steal, recognizes that someone has the right to own something and you don't because they own it. You cannot take it from them. You shall not steal. Uh, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. This is a mental attitude, but it's the mental attitude that leads to uh, thievery. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or his wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. The is your neighbor's implies the right of ownership and the right to uh, protect his own property. We have biblical examples under point number two. There are biblical examples of those who protected their private property. Uh, Abraham. One of these is that Abraham, after the uh, Chedorlaomer Alliance came down through uh, the land that God had promised uh, Israel, came down through Canaan and uh, uh, assaulted in uh, the area around Sodom and Gomorrah and took Lot and his family captive. They took a huge amount of plunder with him, and they headed north. And Abraham gathered his servants and went after them and rescued Lot and his family and took back everything that uh, these uh brigands had stolen from the the cities to return those goods back to their rightful owners. And so there's clear recognition throughout uh, the Old Testament for both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the United Kingdom as well, that, that whenever they were being attacked by foreign powers, they had the right to protect the land that God had given them and to defend it from those who were going to uh, steal from them. So third point, the Bible clearly recognizes the right of self-defense and the defense of property through the use of deadly force. This is seen in Luke 22, 35, and 36, and then verse 38. The scene here is towards the end of Jesus' 
uh, ministry on the earth, and he is with his disciples. And he refers to an earlier incident in his ministry when he sent the disciples out, and he told them not to take anything with them, to only go to the house of Judah, the house of Israel, and that God would supply for their needs along the way. And in those instructions, he told them not to take a money bag, not to take a, a knapsack, not to take their overnight bag or an extra pair of shoes or anything, no, no weapons. But then in this chapter, he's going to change the orders because now he's been rejected as Messiah, and so the disciples have a different mission. They're going to be going out into the world beyond Israel where their lives can be threatened. They're going to be traveling along these roads where they can be assaulted by robbers and all all manner of people, and so they need to be able to protect themselves. And so in verse 36, he said, Then he said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack, your overnight bag, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. In other words, buy buy what you need in order to protect yourself along the way. Buy yourself a nice, uh, you know, nice Glock or uh, HK-45 or something of that nature, or go out and get yourself an AR-15, whatever you need in order to protect your private property. There's a, clearly a recognition here of the principle of personal ownership of weapons in order to defend uh, defend your property. And you can go back into the Old Testament, and there's a principle that's recognized in in the time of the Philistines when the Philistines were dominating the southern kingdom of Israel during the reign of, of Saul, or just before the reign of Saul, actually, when Samuel uh, was the judge and the prophet, that were told that the Philistines had iron, so they could make iron weapons. That was the latest, greatest technology. Uh, they had iron weaponry. And so they had blacksmiths that could uh, uh, forge the iron and make uh, extremely strong swords and spears, spearheads, etc. And then it states in the text that they prohibited, because they dominated the area, they prohibited the, the Israelites from having blacksmiths. So that meant that the Jews could only were, were restricted to bronze. Uh, materials. That's why they called it the Bronze Age. So, and bronze is much uh, is a much weaker metal than than steel. So, I mean, than iron. So, when iron meets bronze, guess who wins? And so, this the, what this recognizes is down through history, the way a superior power maintains its control over an inferior power is to pre- prevent them from having access to the same technology that they have so they can't protect themselves. Now, we live in a world today when we have pretty advanced technology. We have all kinds of of weaponry. We have fully automatic weapons, and we have uh, a lot of other things that are available to enhance the accuracy of, of weapons. But if the government, see, the government was, according to the, the uh, Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the reason you have the right to bear arms is to protect yourself from the encroachment of the bullies, and the tyr- including the tyranny of government. But if the government has access to fully automatic weapons and, and M16s and machine guns and everything else, and all you have is access to a 22 single shot, guess who wins? 
And the founding fathers understood that, that the citizens had to have uh, the right of ownership of weapons so they could protect themselves from the encroachments of government, which was a problem they had they had with the with the British. Last week I heard a great story. A friend of mine was from uh, Washington State. He's in a uh, retired military up there uh, working at Fort Lewis. When he first moved up there, because he's a good Texan, he went in to apply for his uh, concealed handgun license. And he went in, and he had no idea what was going to be involved in getting his uh, uh, CHL up in Washington State, figuring it was the you know, People's Republic of Washington State, so he would have a lot more problem getting it there than he would in Texas. And he went and he said, well, what do I need to do in order to get my CHL here? And she said, well, if you have a driver's license and a Social Security card, we can run a background check on you at $60. You can have your uh, CHL. We'll take your fingerprints, and you can come back in two weeks and get it. He said, well, I'm from Texas, and at least in Texas you have to at least have, show some sort of competency with your weapon. You have to go through a little class, and you have to uh, go to the range and demonstrate your competency. And she, he said, this lady didn't even look up from the paper. She said, Second Amendment doesn't say anything about competency. <laughs> I thought that was great. We don't want to forget that. That is that is really our our concealed handgun license is the Second Amendment, or it, 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 it that's what its intent was. But of course, the courts have eroded that particular freedom. But Jesus recognizes that here in Luke 22. In fact, he gives that mandate: you need to be able to defend your your life, your property. Now, that doesn't mean you should always defend it the same way. The right to do something doesn't mean that you should do it all the time. There are other circumstances where you may not exercise that particular right depending on uh, what else is going on. If you're a pastor or a missionary, for example, you may choose not to do what you have the right to do in order to uh, not let that become a distraction to your ministry. Uh, you may choose to uh, be put in prison and when you shouldn't be, simply because that is going to give you an opportunity to do what uh, what you want to do, and if you fight it, you're going to get killed, and that ends your ministry. So there are extenuating circumstances for all of these things, and when so when Jesus told them to that they should uh, carry a sword, two verses later, the disciples said, "Look, Lord, here are two swords." So they were armed, and this is just before they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. So when they went to the Garden of Gethsemane, they had two swords, and guess who had one of them? Peter. And that's why he was uh, took off Malthus's ear. So that is a clear recognition that believers have the right of self-defense and to defend their property. But from the early stages of persecution on, believers did not generally have the opportunity to defend themselves because they're overwhelmed by the superior forces of the state or the religious institution or whoever it was, and so they had no opportunity to avail themselves of a means of, of protection. In the early church, one of the earliest historians in the, in the early church was a man by the name of Eusebius who wrote down uh, many, many stories and was the first church historian. And in one of his uh, writings, he gives the story of a, per, a description of the persecution uh, during the time of Decius. Decius was um, Decius was a 
emperor, Roman emperor, in the early part or late part of the of the third century, late part of the third century, and so he describes the sufferings of Christians in Alexandria in northern Egypt uh, during that time, and he says of them, then all with one impulse rushed to the houses of the pious, that's the believers, and they dragged forth, so this describes a kind of a riot, everybody got worked up against the Christians, they dragged forth whomsoever anyone knew as a neighbor and despoiled and plundered them. They took for themselves the more valuable property, but the poor articles and those made of wood they scattered about and burned in the streets so that the city appeared as if it had been taken by an enemy. But the brethren withdrew and went away and, quote, then he quotes this passage, took joyfully the spoiling of their goods, and then he wrote like those to whom Paul bore witness. Of course, we don't believe Paul wrote uh, Hebrews, but he did. So that's why I put that uh, little note in there. So this is what is going on in the in the early church, and each generation has to decide how they're going to handle persecution and how they are going to handle the defense against those who are persecuting them, whether uh, and whether there is room to challenge these things in the courts or whether they have to fight, and there have been cases when they've done both uh, down through church history, or whether they are going to uh, perhaps not fight for the sake of a higher reason. So these are not easy decisions, but the Scripture doesn't tell us specifically what to do. I think it lays down the principles because each believer, depending on the circumstances, has to decide how they are going to respond to the circumstances, so the, law, the rules related to doubtful things are what uh, come into play. The point, though, in Hebrews chapter, 11, uh, chapter 10, verse 34, is the mental attitude. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods. It doesn't say they passively accepted it. Doesn't it say they accepted it like a bunch of wimps and weenies and girly men? We don't know if they resisted in any way whatsoever or what they did. It's that in terms of the loss of their houses, their homes, all of their possessions, they recognize that this is nothing in this life compared to that which we have in the future. So they joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods because they knew it's a causal participle there because they knew that you because you knew that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven once again it is a a matter of of uh, looking to the future and understanding your eternal destiny and living in light of that eternal destiny. And then he gives the conclusion in verse 35. And verse 35 is really the center of this last part. Therefore, don't cast away your confidence. Don't give up. No matter how tough things get going, don't fade out in the stretch as a believer. Don't wimp out. No matter how tough things might get, no matter how discouraged you might get at times, don't use that as an excuse to become a failure in your spiritual life. And so this is the conclusion. Therefore, do not cast away, uh, apobalo, meaning to throw away, cast away, uh, your confidence. And the word for confidence has the idea of certainty or assurance 
Uh, it, it, it originally comes from the, a word that describes the, the confidence of a public speaker, that he is assured of him, himself and his ability to speak. And so it came to be, to mean confidence and assurance. And don't throw away your confidence, your assurance in your eternal destiny. And if you hang with it, there is great reward. Reward is that which is given to the believer on the basis of his walk with the Lord, his spiritual life. And so what do you have to do in order to continue? You need endurance. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance. Endurance is what gets you through the tough times. It is the Greek word hupomonates, the same word used in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, when the writer, when James says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Notice the same theme there that we have here. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Whatever the, the testing is, it's always a testing of something. What is it in, in James 1? The testing of your faith. Now, faith has a couple of different nuances, and the reason we need to understand this is that the writer of James is emphasizing the same themes that the writer of Hebrews is saying, and that is when you're going through a tough time, it's a test of the doctrine in your soul, not the ability to believe, but what you believe. Do you really believe what you believe? Does it really make a difference when you hit the the tough times in life when you go around the corner and you run into a brick wall and your life just seems to fragment all over everything. Uh, you don't know what the expectation is. I mean, you, you're expecting something good and you got something bad, and it is a test of your faith. Is the doctrine in your soul really going to give you stability and hope and happiness and joy even in the midst of the, of the tough times? Does what you believe, do you really believe it? Or is it just something that you uh, that you think you believe? And so we have these same themes of joy in the midst of testing and the need to endure. So James says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance will have its perfect result or mature result there. That's the idea in the Greek, completing something, completing the process of your of your spiritual growth. So Hebrews the writer of Hebrews says, For you have need of endurance. Endurance is what gets you from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. After you've lived your life walking by the Spirit and obeying the Word, you may receive the promise that it the promise is related to the inheritance. And then we come to uh, verses 37 and 38, which take two Old Testament passages, blend them together by way of making an application. Now, as we've gone through Hebrews, we've seen a number of places where, where the writer of Hebrews has taken Old Testament passages that don't really look like what you have in your Old Testament, and he sort of massages them under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and puts them together in order to make a point. He's drawing an application. He's not giving an interpretation of the original text. He's simply applying an underlying principle that's there in the original text. And so in verses 37 and 38, he quotes from Isaiah uh, chapter uh, 26, verse 20, 
and joins one phrase out of Isaiah 26.20 with Habakkuk or Habakkuk 2, 3, and 4. And he writes, um, takes from Isaiah 26.20 the phrase for yet a little while or in a little moment. He just takes that one little phrase out of Isaiah 26.20 out of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of that verse, and then he then and after that he quotes uh, from uh, Habakkuk or Habakkuk two three and four, but he changes the word order, change, switches a couple of clauses around in order to apply the principle, add a couple of things and apply it to their situation. Now there were certain things that they had in common and that we have in common. For example, in Isaiah's time the people in Israel faced a national threat. There was a national security threat to Israel, and that was the announcement of judgment that God gave through the prophet Isaiah that eventually God was going to bring in the Babylonians, and they were going to wipe out uh, the southern kingdom of Judah and destroy it, and the people would be taken out of the land. And so this was the warning but within that warning was the promise that the nation was nevertheless secure in God's care and that this would not totally destroy the nation, but eventually God would bring them back. And that is the context of Isaiah uh, chapter 26. It is a passage that focuses on the security that we have in God's promise. So if you go back and just briefly look at Isaiah chapter 26, it's a passage of great uh, promises. It starts off in that day, meaning this is that day when Israel has been brought back to the land. This song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks, open the gates that the righteous nation, which keeps the truth, may enter in. Of course, that hasn't happened in history yet. And then we have those verses you hear so frequently, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in you, trusts in the Lord forever, for in Yahweh the Lord is everlasting strength. That is a reference to what the righteous believe and gives them uh, a future hope. Now, if you go down through the chapter and you come to the end of the chapter, that's where we have the verse uh, in question, verse 20 where there is a, um, a cry to the people, call to the people to enter into the chambers of God. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment. That's the phrase that, that the writer of Hebrews picks up. What he is doing is he's going to connect these two events, early 8th century or late 8th century under Isaiah, when Isaiah is warning of the coming destruction under the Babylonians, and then Habakkuk, which is written around 605, 100 years after Isaiah, when it's on the verge of happening. He's going to tie these together and say, you may think that your life's going to fall apart, and there's insecurity everywhere, but there's security only in God's plan. And so he, he marries that quote, with the third verse of uh, Habakkuk chapter 2. And I'm going to stop there because it's 9 o'clock and we're out of time. There's too much to say about this. So we'll wrap up the last couple of verses. We just have uh, 10, 37, 38, and 39 to finish chapter 10, and that will then set us up to go into the, the next chapter, which is a favorite chapter for many people. And we'll have to find out what faith is 
I'll leave you with the teaser. Hebrews, um, Hebrews 11.1 1 is so frequently quoted as a definition of faith. But is it? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Is that a definition of faith, or is it something else? Come back next week. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things this evening and to be uh, encouraged by the fact that down through the ages, believers have always faced adversity from the cosmic system. We have always faced suffering, whether it's passive or active, and whether it's directly or indirectly related to our position in Christ. But, Father, we know that we dare not give up. We dare not fall by the wayside. We dare not uh, wimp out but you are going to provide the strength for us and you have given us security in everything we need to face and handle every problem in life so that at the end we may be victorious in our spiritual life. You will be glorified and we will be qualified to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes in his kingdom. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.